ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's conversation includes content that might be upsetting. Please take care when listening. Brendan Watkins grew up in a loving home in a working-class suburb of Melbourne. But even as a small boy, Brendan couldn't help but notice that no one in his family bore much of a physical resemblance to each other. Then came the day that his parents sat Brendan and his brother down and told them they had been adopted not long after birth, from a Catholic welfare agency. The subject hardly ever came up after that. Brendan loved his parents and didn't want to appear disloyal to them. But as an adult, he began to make inquiries. Brendan was a little worried about what he might find, and he wondered about the circumstances of his birth and why his birth mother and father had wanted or needed to give him up. The search for the true identities of his birth parents took months and years and decades. There were things told to Brendan that just weren't true, and there were areas of silence around his father's identity in particular that Brendan just couldn't penetrate. Brendan has written a memoir that's called Tell No One. Hello, Brendan. Hi, Richard. You say you grew up behind a sandwich shop in Richmond, in Melbourne. Did that mean you could avail yourself of all the goodies and treats and lollies and ice creams in that sandwich shop, Brendan? We had free, unfettered access, yes. It was was great. And and I think I had more friends than many others uh, would have had because... Yeah, we had Golden Gate times and Cherry Ripes and Snowballs. We, we had it all. Yeah. Lugs, Razzes, yeah. Zaps, yeah. Sunny Boys, all that stuff. Mates, yeah, they were all there. <laughs> Did your mum and dad enjoy being the parents of two rambunctious young boys? Yeah, they loved it. Yeah, they, they did. They were the most wonderful parents. I can't, I can't envisage better parents than, than Roy and Bet, my adoptive parents, and I, I can't imagine a better brother than... Damien, my brother. But we were very different. We were always not off kilter, but we had very different inclinations and interests. My brother was very much into science fiction and a whole bunch of stuff that I had very little interest in. And additional to that, we all looked very different. I often thought after we were told we were adopted that I kept thinking I would have thought the Catholic agency would have made some effort to have two adoptive boys look vaguely similar, but Damien and I looked so dissimilar. And somehow or other we looked dissimilar to to our adoptive parents. So it, it was odd. There was always little uh, little quirks that didn't quite gel with me. Was there much money about in the house? No, there wasn't. Not that extreme... Wealth seemed to be such a thing in those days in the 60s, but no, we wore well-darned socks and hand-me-downs and, yeah, we struggled for money, but it did seem as though that the majority of my peers did too. So then came the day after Sunday Mass when you were eight years old and your parents sat you down for that talk. What do you remember of that day, Brendan? Well, I think in my mind I can remember it with enormous clarity. I can remember everything about the room, the posters on the wall, what my parents were wearing, 
I, I think I can remember the smell of the roast that was in the oven and we were told we were adopted and eight years of age was the usual age that people are told. So I was eight, my brother was 18 months older and I remember that day with enormous clarity. I recently asked my brother what he remembered of the day and he had no recollection, which, you know, sort of goes to underscore this this thing of our differences. You know, his response recently was, well, I thought we always knew. And I can remember every moment and I can remember the weight of it and lying down, being very, very aware that my life was going to... It was, it was a different thing from that moment onwards. Was it horrible? Did it feel like the floor would sort of disappeared beneath your feet? No, it wasn't an awful thing. In, look, in some ways it was almost... Oh, you know, that light bulb, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Right. Ah, it wasn't a terrible thing, but it was something that was obviously laden with enormous questions. Did you pepper your parents with questions after that? No, I didn't. Look, it's something that was sort of shut away. It It was referred to on occasion in, you know, vague ways, but there were never those deep conversations about, you know, how how do you really feel about this? We were told that Roy and Bet were going to be our parents forever and that they would love us forever and it was permanent and nothing would change. We were secure and I did feel secure, but I just had a whole lot of questions and that the notion in those days was adoptive people needed to show gratitude and gratitude was not asking questions because you might upset your parents, that you might think that you don't want them, that you want your other parents, your birth parents. And... I think particularly in the Catholic institutions, Catholic schools and the like, it was it was another layer of silence and gratitude. And so, no, I didn't ask those questions. You quote the great novelist Jeanette Winterson in your book who herself was adopted by, yeah. by people who weren't at all like your birth parents, quite strange people in the north of England. And Jeanette Winterson said, quote, adoption drops you into the story after it has started. It's like reading a book with the first few pages missing. Is that how it felt for you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. All I had was questions. Was there an upside at all to knowing you were adopted? Yeah, look, I think in some ways, you know, I I guess you've got a blank page in a lot of ways and you can sort of invent who you are. I think peers, as I grew up, you know, the father was an accountant or a mechanic or a whatever. I didn't feel as though there were any footsteps I had to follow. And I, that, that's a good thing. You know, I kind of, I did make it up as I go. And I spent a lot of time going around in circles with careers and the like, but none of it was a waste of time. So, yeah, I think that there is an upside if you have loving adoptive parents as we did. It was the Catholic Welfare Agency that had been instrumental in delivering you and your brother to your adoptive parents. They were devout churchgoers. How were priests regarded by people like your adoptive mum and dad, Roy and Bet? Well, they were unquestionable. We were told, and certainly in the eyes of my parents, they were the, the hands and feet of, of, of God on earth. Is that the phrase that was used at the time? Well, it was something that was bandied around at school. So, yeah, look, it, priests were unimpeachable. They, they were the highest of the high. And how did your relationship with the church and the faith change as you entered your teens, Brendan? Well, I was always curious and I was inquiring and I read a lot and relatively early became suspicious 
you know, I think if you're adopted, you've probably, well, many people are more questioning. Questioning about the first principles of things. Yeah, yeah, the fundamentals. There's nothing more fundamental than your parents. And eventually I arrived at about 14 years of age at the conclusion that I didn't believe in this God um, and stopped going to Mass. And so that was a, a, you know, a, an enormous moment in our little family life. Yeah, and did you admit this to your parents and did it kill them? <laughs> Well, I think they suspect, you know, again, being good Catholics, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, but it's not spoken about. So I think they suspected I was wagging mass. I was supposed to be going to seven o'clock mass and, you know, I wasn't going to seven o'clock mass. And I think they suspected. And when I kind of fessed up, they eventually said, you can make your own decisions. And away we went. So you went into adulthood with those missing few first pages still on your mind. How far into adulthood were you when you decided you would go looking for the identities of your birth parents? Well, in my teenage years, there was no opportunity to do anything about searching. So uh, the laws progressively changed around adoption. So it was in the 1980s when access was finally given to adoptees to get their original birth certificates. And I was always curious when the laws changed. There was a lot of media coverage and it was something I always wanted to do. But being a good boy didn't want to go ahead and look as though I wasn't grateful and my parents were so wonderful, I held back. When it got to the stage in my mid-late 20s and I had this wonderful partner, we were thinking about families and eventually she discovered she had this health issue that um, while it didn't affect her day to day, would certainly have implications for our children. And that was enough to get me over the edge to think, no, this is my birthright. This isn't about wanting to make another family. This is about wanting to find out biological information about issues, health issues that might affect our kids. And so that's what, that's what got me over the line. That's when I went and made the application. What were some of the worries you had about finding the identities of your parents? What information might suddenly be disclosed to you, having found out who they were and why they'd needed to give you up? Yeah, well, uh, you know, maybe they're dead. Maybe they're in jail. Um, wouldn't it be horrible if if they wanted nothing to do with you and you, and you had a second rejection? And maybe you might find out something horrendous about violence or maybe incest or rape, all those sorts of bogeymen. They're real, but they all float around in your mind in the middle of the night when you're uh, on the precipice of making that application. So you made an appointment with the Office of Catholic Welfare Bureau and you went in there to find out the identity of your birth mother. What happened on that day when you went in, Brendan? Well, I sat down on a nice chair next to the, the table with a, a box of tissues and after a bit of instruction about the information I was going to get, I was handed my original birth certificate and it had my, my mother's birth name on it. And... I've always been positive and I suppose I'd assumed that my birth certificate would be the stereotypical. The stereotypical was no details of the father and a young mother and that's, you know, the sort of normal explanation. You know, a boy, a girl, a man, a woman in, you know, their late teens and they let passion get the better of them and a child emerges but I got my birth certificate and uh, my father's name wasn't there and that was the usual scenario. But my mother didn't have the Anglo name that I was anticipating and she was 27. 27 was a really 
old age for somebody in my experience to be giving a child away. So, so many questions begged from that information and from that conversation. You've given her the name Maggie in your book. What did the counsellor you were with at that welfare bureau think of you calling her and making contact with her? Oh, she was very discouraging. She didn't say it, but, yeah, I very much got the sense that uh, it was something I shouldn't do, not to open Pandora's box. So where did that leave you? Uh, well, I was adamant, particularly because of us having kids and, you know, this, this health issue that, in the very least, I, I was entitled to information about health complications that might impact our kids. So I was adamant I wanted contact to be made and, again, you know, it wasn't encouraged, but... The social worker that I was dealing with said, well, you know, if that's the case, in a discouraging voice... If you really must, y- Mr Watkins, y- yes, that kind of thing. Yes, mm. yes, and don't, don't like the look of this, but if you must, I can do this on your behalf. Were you thinking that was a bit weird at the time? Why wouldn't she, she want to put you in touch? Would you, were you thinking, what's, what's wrong here? Well, I knew the church. You know, it's very hard to leave the Catholic church. I'd, I'd sort of walked away from it when I was 14 or 15. But, yeah, that obedient thing is always there and these strange customs and the way the Catholics do things. I, I didn't really mind, but you go into these things with no control. So when she did make contact with Maggie, your birth mother, what, what did she report back to you? Well, it took weeks, weeks and I was dragged in to another meeting and sat down and told, I've spoken with your mother, she's alive, but you need to understand that you'll never see her, you'll never meet her, there'll be no contact. You need to go home and forget about Maggie forever. What did Maggie's message to you say via her? Well, I was told that she was determined and forthright and she'd made her mind up, that she prayed for me every day and I needed to accept it and go home and forget about it. It it was over. What thoughts were swirling through your mind after that? Were you feeling somehow ashamed or something? Well, yeah, there's there's an element of fear, but... Because that sounds like you've been bad, doesn't it? I mean, like, I have no desire to make contact with you, but I am praying for you every day. It (laughs) does make you sound like some miserable sinner, doesn't it? Look, overwhelmingly, I think I felt there's been a mistake, there's been a misunderstanding. If there's something horrible that's happened, I haven't done it. Maybe she's hiding something. Obviously she's hiding something. Maybe she has a family, maybe she has a a husband and, and siblings and who knows, it could have been one of these awful scenarios. Maybe that's the case, but I wasn't someone to run away from or, you know, she just didn't know me, you know. I I thought it was a misunderstanding. If if only she got to talk to me, to meet me, she could be proud of me. That's what I thought. So you had a name. How did you track her down? Well, in those days, it was the olden days, you know, you had to get on a tram and go into the GPO and... um, White pages in the GPO. That's it, yeah. Say that to kids today. Hey, like there was no internet. You had to go into the GPO and flick through the various white pages that were all all over the state. That's right, yeah. And there were dinosaurs in the city. It was a long time ago. (laughs) And And you found her. She was the only one in the phone book. And at that time, she was in Sydney. And I had a name and I had a number and I had her address. And even though the church had said, stay away, and the intimation when I was told, go home and forget her for forever was 
C. C, that's what you get. Right. But I had her name and I knew where she was and I had her phone number. So you're able to write her the letter. Presumably you can say, like, I bear no ill will towards you and I don't want anything from you, I just want to make contact, and you wrote that letter? Yeah, look, I wrote a few letters. You know, I said initially what I really want to know about, you know, I explained about Kate's medical complication. Initially I just want this this health record information and, you know, I'd love us to be friends or at least to talk or at least to have some sort of exchange. I'm I'm kind of a nice person. Eventually, she did reply to a letter, and it was a beautiful letter that came back, but she sent me back to the Catholic Family Welfare Bureau. And I went there and got a very icy, (laughs) a very icy response and was put back in my box. So what did you do next, despite these twin rebuffs, Brendan? Oh, I stewed. (laughs) Like a good Catholic, I stewed for weeks and months and then became indignant and Kate and I started researching. You know, we had this unusual name in another state and found some of my ancestors in South Australia and after dealing with Jigsaw, as it was known, an adoption agency, secular adoption agency, we made contact with relatives of my mother, which relatives of mine. And so one day Kate rang under the guise because my mother didn't want to be identified um, as a long lost friend and said, I'm a friend of Maggie's and I'm just wanting to make contact and see where she is. And the reply came back, oh, you mean Maggie the nun? Maggie the nun. Maggie the nun. How did that land in your mind, that bit of information? Well, I was at work and I got the call and Kate said, are you sitting down? Your mum's a nun. And it was an explanation. It made sense. That's why. She was, she was in a convent somewhere doing good deeds and, and that's why. And it was the most bizarre explanation, of course, but it did give me some, some sense of that's why there was a second rejection. You know, second rejections for adoptees is one of the, you know, the great fears. It's one of the last things you ever want to have to deal with. So I'm sure you did answer a couple of very large questions that you'd had, but <laughs> opened up a whole, about 19 other questions, surely. So you let things lie after that for a while and you had kids anyway and the kids were all fine. They were, this didn't end up being an issue just to sort of put a line under that? Well, they did, yeah, but, you know, as time goes on, I was always asked, you know, the doctor, you know, any, any, you know, medical complications, heart attacks and strokes and cancers, you know, what runs in the family? And I'd sort of been able to swallow that, I, you know, I don't know any of those things, but my, my kids also were going to have to deal with all of that. Oh, there's some missing pages from their books too. Absolutely, yeah. It's intergenerational and it goes on forever until there's some answers provided. And yeah, look, it burnt away in me for a long time, you know, but, but I should say, I, you know, I had a wonderful, wonderful life and I had this wonderful family and wonderful adoptive parents. But there's this birthright, you know, people can have secrets to protect themselves and some shame, but it reverberates through generations. They're not necessarily secrets you're obliged to keep. No. It's your story too. Absolutely. And, and, and it then becomes my kid's story. So we get to 2008. Many years have gone by after initial contact with Maggie. As the years went by, were you, were you in contact at all or were you just trying to keep an eye on whether she was 
still on this planet? Being adopted, I had no right to find out anything formally about her. And so I had a little reminder in my Outlook calendar to every year go and check that your mother hasn't died. You mean check the death notices? Yeah. And the name wasn't there? Yeah. And so I did that every year. And on occasion, because I had an address and it didn't really make sense that it wasn't a convent, but I had an address that was in the phone book and I did check that on occasion. I'd send her a Christmas card. I knew her birthday. I occasionally sent birthday cards and none were ever reciprocated. So for years, she was a nun in a convent praying for forgiveness. So 2008 comes around and by then your much-loved adoptive parents, Roy and Beth, had passed away and that's when you decided it was time to reach out again. How did you re-establish contact with Maggie? Letters that, um, you know, not the first one, but eventually letters were reciprocated and in a relatively short period of time, contact was made. Kate had a conversation and eventually I was granted permission to have a conversation with my birth mother. And what was she able to tell you then? Well, one of the first things she told me was that she hadn't been a nun for a couple of decades. Which explained why she was in an apartment rather than a convent. Yeah, and the second thing she told me was that my father was dead. Was she willing to meet with you at this point? No, look, every single step of the way, it felt like I'll just write this letter and that's it. That's it. I'll just have this conversation and that's it. And eventually there was a meeting and very, very strongly the impression was, so you're satisfied? Is that it? Is that everything that I've told you everything? So you came to her place in Sydney? Yeah. And you brought your partner Kate and your your lovely kids and what were you expecting to come from that meeting, Brendan, once you'd shown up at her door on an interstate car trip with the family? Well, again, I guess naively I thought, oh, well, once she meets me and Kate and these fabulous kids that, of course, she'd be more open and she'd be welcoming why these were her grandkids. My parents and Kate's parents adored our kids. They're her kids too. You know, I was just just naively thinking, it's us. You know, we're nothing to be scared of. But that's not what happened, was it? No, no. And look, she she wasn't she wasn't awful by a stretch. She was she was a polished host, and she was, you know, warm is warm's not the right word. But she was very engaged, and there was conversation. There was lunch. I was sat in the big comfy chair and at the head of the table, and but everything was on the surface, everything was superficial and there was no talk about, you know, it it could have been a stranger at the bus stop. You know, this was my birth mother and there was nothing that was deep. Your partner Kate's a pretty smart cookie and quite bold as well. What What did she think about all this, Brendan, when you asked her about what she thought was going on here? Well, I suppose... You know, she saw me constantly going back to the well and thinking, you know, maybe you've just got to let this go. Did Kate suspect that she was, Maggie was protecting some large secret? Yeah, well, we both were. You know, we both knew there was some god-awful thing that she didn't want us to know, um, that it seemed as though it was something very different from, well, it certainly wasn't teenagers having fun and having a child. This was something big. Did you think maybe that Maggie was trying to protect you from some hideous 
yeah, awful secret. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's that's the fear. Um, like your father could have turned out to be a serial killer or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And she wasn't very good at covering her tracks. So over the years, over these years, we were told he was a handsome, charismatic man that wasn't totally honest with her and, and you know, in the first conversation that he was dead and then, oh, no, I didn't say he was dead. He was somebody that I only knew briefly. I don't know what happened to him. And at that meeting, she said he wasn't dead as far as she knew. And all of a sudden I thought, well, all right, I'll park my maternal ancestry. Maybe what I should be chasing is my paternal ancestry. And so I was, well, can can you at least tell me my father's name? And then she gave you a name. Eventually, yeah, Paul Hayes. And he's from Northbridge in Sydney. And so there was more information and a name. And so did you try and track that that name down? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hired a private detective and... <laughs> and spent a whole lot of money and he kept coming back to me saying, uh, no, there's no, I've spoken to pretty much every Paul Hayes. But by the time he got to the end of the race, I've spoken to nearly every Paul Hayes in the country or written to them. He said, I believe this, this name is an invention. He said, I've, you know, you can keep sending me checks if you want, but this is an invention. It's not real. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So after all this, she's given you a false name, Paul Hayes, that your private detective thinks does not exist. That sort of leaves you nowhere for a long while. And then we fast forward to 2015 when DNA testing and ancestry testing becomes commercially possible. It's very easy to get all this done. Once you signed up for one of those ancestry DNA services, what kind of info were they able to give you? Well, I was hoping I'd spit into a tube and an email had come back in six weeks and say... Here's your dad. Yeah, here's your dad. <laughs> right. Off you go. Yeah. And that didn't happen. And I know it happened for lots and lots of people that direct solutions to maternal, paternal questions were resolved quickly. The first thing they give you is a map of where you're from. And I'd always thought my mother, Becca, is the surname. I, I, I always thought I sort of had these Germanic, Eastern European... Genes, but it was an unusual name, and I, I'd, I'd sort of identified with people of Germanic background, had friends that were Germans. So I had a map, and I found out I was Irish, which was very strange. And emails arrive, you know, pretty frequently if there's a large database of people within your gene pool of cousins. But very often, the, the most populous are the ones that are furthest back, so third and fourth and fifth and sixth cousins. And initially, it's incredibly exciting because you find these relatives, blood relatives, you're sharing DNA. Surely you can pull up a family tree and just go ink, 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 and there's your dad. But it proved to be a lot harder than that. So in 2015, that process began, but it took three years. So Kate's detective work 
was able to narrow it down to a few names, potential candidates for your fatherhood after these several years of research. How did you and she narrow it down to a single name, the name of your birth father? Well, genetics paired it down to four people, time, place, DNA. And so she had these four people. Three of them were very close in the age to to my mother and the fourth person genetically could have been my father, but he wasn't going to be because he was 30 years older and he was a priest. So he could have been discounted, but, you know, DNA-wise, he could have been the father. And so it was four people. And again, because we'd had all of these decades of protecting my mother's identity and her great shame, we couldn't just ring the family and say, hi, someone in your family's done DNA, and it could be that one of these four people is the father of Brendan. So she'd pared it down to the four. A phone call was made to my mother saying, look, we don't want to expose you. What can you tell us? There's, there's four people. And initially she didn't have any answers. She said, no, it couldn't be. No, that's not right. No, I can't remember. She said none of the above initially. None of the above. The next day, the next morning, she rang Kate and said, yes, Father Vincent Scheel is Brendan's father. The elderly priest? The elderly priest was my father. Father Vincent Shield was your your father. And and how much older than Maggie? 30 years. He was 30 years older than mm. Maggie. So you said Maggie was 27. He was 57 when he became your father. How are you feeling about all this? That a whole, whole lot more questions are answered by that, <laughs> I suppose. To, to know that your mother had been a nun and your father had been a priest. Well, a little backstory is... In Kate's sleuthing, she'd discovered a cousin who knew them really well. And so I guess the backstory to this is we were told before that call was made to Maggie that they were great mates and that they, they were always together. They, they went everywhere together. And so it was a common knowledge that you were their offspring? Is that what these relatives no, were hinting? They're, just, they're no. not hinting this? Well, there was an enormous surprise. You know, a penny dropped that Maggie had had a child. And eventually, you know, once contact was made with more of the paternal family, people said, you know, I I did everything to protect her identity. But people said, listen, if Maggie's had a child, it's to Vincent. They were great mates. They were always always together. And, you know, they lived together. They, They lived together for the last years of his life. It was nearly 10 years. And that's when it occurred to me that when I made contact with my mother, she was living with my father at the address she was still living at. They were living together. So my father and my mother, under the same roof, got a letter from me saying, your son's here. My mother had already resigned from the convent. And they wrote back and said, go home and forget about Maggie forever. Was he still a priest at the time? You bet. He was a celebrated priest. A celebrated priest. What kind of things were people telling you about Father Vincent Shield, your father? <laughs> well, you only, you know, you, I started Googling and, and he was this, he was this sort of outrageous builder, traveler, Bondi lifesaver, built a church in a uranium mine in the outback. He, he was this, he was, um, this, 
too real to be true father. It was like an Indiana Jones picture had been painted by my paternal family and by articles that I began pulling out of the internet and the Catholic newspapers and the like. He was this larger-than-life character. Right, a man of action, a man of many good deeds and, and, and much loved by the sound of things too. Well, he polarised, yeah, much loved, so much vaunted, much celebrated by the church for his good deeds. So Mother Teresa and Fulton Sheen and travelling the world, all these wonderful stories. But, you know, not unlike many of the older, you know, Irish origin Catholic priests, he polarised people. You know, it was his way or the highway. So, you know, some people in the family that were very close to him, they weren't so keen on him at all. But one of the things that really struck me when I started talking to them, they all adored my mother. They said she was fantastic. They loved her. And they said, of course, if she had a child, it was to him. And he wasn't so great. He was a grumpy old bugger that kept telling us how to live our lives. (laughs) Maggie, the opposite. And the picture I'd been given of Maggie from the church was that she was harsh and stern and cold. And that's not who she was. That burnt her reputation. Was there something of a relief in this knowledge? Because it turned out your father was this very interesting man. You know, you, you're not the child of Hitler or a mass murderer, as it turns out. And was there some kind of relief in knowing that you were the, the offspring of a man like him rather than someone else? It was every single emotion you could imagine every single day. Relief was part of it. Being pretty pissed off was was another part of it. The hypocrisy of the church, it really made my blood boil and made me want to know more about other priests that had had children and, and how common this was. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> it was the most bizarre conceivable explanation. But eventually, yeah, I... I felt uh, felt enormous sympathy for my mother, anger at my father, and I wanted to get to the bottom of what was going on with other people like me. So it turned out, Maggie, there's no other way to put this, it told you a whole pack of lies about a great many things to protect his identity. She told you he was dead at a time when he was still alive. She'd given you a false name. Even the flat she was living in, she said, had been left to her by a little old lady. In fact, it had kind of been left to her by your father. Yeah. Was it hard to forgive her for that? Yes. It, yeah. Could uh, you and could you forgive her for that? Well, I, I, I have and I do, absolutely. I had to get to the bottom of why someone would behave like that. So I ended up quitting my job and researched, investigated what this was about because, you know, we, when you're told you're the child of a priest, you assume you're the first one, you're the only one, there can't be many. I wonder if Maggie really enjoyed their secret affair, enjoyed the secrecy of it, perhaps. And although you were her birth son, she wasn't going to... You were virtually a stranger to her and she wasn't going to let anyone step in and ruin the pleasure she got, the joy she got from that secret affair with a man she she really loved. What do you think? Look, I'll never know the true nature of their relationship if, if it was a relationship. I don't... It, it wasn't a partnership of equals. Everything my father was, my mother wasn't. He came from a large, supportive family. He had money. He was a house builder before he became a priest. He owned a few houses. 
around Balmain, he had an education, wealth, security, authority. My mother was the opposite. She came from a difficult home life. She escaped the home life. My father helped her come to Sydney and stay with his family. When she just turned 18, she didn't have a career, she didn't have money, she didn't have family, there was no education, there was, there was nothing. Everything he was, she wasn't. He had control, power, and he was, at that time initially, he was the priest. She was a believer. He was God on earth. How does she say no to that? So going against my father, if she ever did want to, would have been a very difficult thing to do. Kate did eventually ask her if she loved my father and she thought about it and said, no, not really. Do you believe that? Yeah, I do. I, I think she, in her young years, look, when they met, she was 14 or 15. She would have been in awe of this man. This wasn't a relationship of equals, of partners. Of It's not love. It's not the thorn birds. It, it's very, very different. And the more I've dug into these things, it's there's so much coercion and manipulation and silencing that goes on. And my inclination, particularly after her saying she didn't love him, is that she made the best of it. She made the best of the situation because she didn't have options. So now you had all the information in front of you. You were the son of a priest and a woman who became a nun. And for a little while, you felt like you must be some kind of a unicorn, that there wouldn't be too many others in your boat. What happens when you went looking for other people like you who are the sons of clergymen, Catholic clergymen? Uh, well, I googled, and I, I think the first lot of results gave 68 million... Oh, God. <laughs> 68 million hits. You know, it wasn't something that I'd ever googled before. But the more you start digging around, the more you see that, you know, this is a thing. This is a real thing. I was so puzzled as, as to why so few children ever came forward in the media and spoke. And I was even more puzzled why virtually no mothers, there were only a handful of children of priests in the world's media that spoke. Four, five, six, that's all. And I wanted to know why they were silent particularly given when, you know, this organisation in Ireland was talking about well over 20,000 children of priests. There's a French organisation that talks about 50,000 children of priests. So why weren't they talking? What have you learnt about the true extent of this phenomenon? Well, I discovered a lot of people have been silenced. So in 2014, the United Nations wrote to the Vatican and amongst other recommendations around the rights of the child, inquiries recommended to the Vatican that they no, no longer compel the mothers of the children of priests to sign confidentiality agreements or NDAs, that they stop the practice and that they recognise the children and they assist the children. So there had been a, a common practice, an institutional response that required mothers previously to sign non-disclosure agreements yeah. After giving birth to children, the children of priests, what incentives were given to women apart from the shaming <clears throat> and that might, might otherwise accompany them? There's contracts, legally binding contracts, and also implied agreements. So very often the woman goes to the church and says, I have a child. Unsurprisingly, the priest is then moved on to the next parish 
and a woman with a child and very often in, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, there wasn't support for single mothers and the like. And so the church would put a roof over the head of the mother and there might be an NDA, but very, very often it's just implied. We need to keep the origin of the father secret. And if that ever changes, you're on the street. And is this what had happened to Maggie? And is this why she'd entered a convent? No, look, I was conceived when she was out of a convent. She entered a convent, she left. A few years later, I was conceived. And to pay her penance, to absolve her of those sins, she went back to another convent. So as they say, it's not the crime that gets you, it's the (laughs) (laughs) cover-up. That's what they said about Nixon anyway. At some level, wouldn't you expect the church to say, we require celibacy of our priests, we've done so since, what, the 13th century? Okay. We require this of our priests. It's inevitable some are going to lapse from their vows of celibacy. This is going to happen. We can't pretend it won't happen. We have some response ready that is not about covering things up, but sort of dealing with the situation in openness and honesty and say, well, you know, we're all human, we're all fallible. The church readily acknowledges we're all made of broken timber. Why, why not do that? Why don't you think that that's been the response? It seems in the long run, it would have been much better for the church to have a more transparent and honest approach when it comes to these matters. Yeah, of course, of course. That would make perfect sense. But the church never knew that DNA would be commonly available for any any man in the street to go and have his DNA done. That, so it was always deniable, I suppose. Then. Yeah, they could never conceive of that uh, being the case. And they'd very successfully for you know hundreds of years, longer, to, to cover these things over, to keep people quiet. It's a form of spiritual abuse. And what I've discovered the more I've dug into this, you know, and I think it's incredibly profound that the church is still... And I know people in Australia that they're being denied their identity when they have DNA evidence and the church still isn't recognising them. There's only been one serious study into the children of priests that's been made. And a young woman in in London that interviewed 100 children of priests found that 56% of them had attempted suicide or had suicidal ideation. 56%. That is at the highest scale of any sort of trauma. This is what the church is working very, very hard to bury and keep closed and keep out of the public domain. When you contacted the church, were they ready to acknowledge you as Father Vincent Shields' son? Well, look, I was, I was enormously fortunate that I happened upon a bishop that did the right thing. As people have learnt with the Royal Commission into institutional abuse of minors, in the Catholic realm, each bishop has the authority to deal with these issues and generally in any way they see fit to make the problem go away. And that's not what happened with you? Not in my case, no, not in my case. The bishop recognised that I was who I said I was. You know, I had a lot of evidence and I certainly had a letter from my mother and we had the DNA and and they, they did do the right thing and they acknowledged this was the truth. I eventually asked for a letter acknowledging and apologising to my mother and to my, my children and to myself and because my father had this celebrated life, that the church had his file, had his records, and they had 300 letters and photographs and whatnot of my father's. And 
this single bishop in what's considered to be the most progressive diocese in the in the country gave me those letters, which I'll forever be grateful. But I make the point, I'm the only person in Australia that's ever been given that information. And everybody else I know that's asked aren't even recognised by their lo- local bishop. So I'm very, very fortunate to be in this case. And I believe everyone else in this boat has the right to that information. What did you learn about your father, your birth father, as you trawled through those documents? And what did you recognise in him that you might see in yourself, Brendan? Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? (laughs) He was dogged. I'm dogged. I reckon. He he was hard-headed. Yep, guilty. There were a lot of similarities, yeah. He was a hard worker. He... You know, he didn't follow the rules. You know, he's a mad gambler and he did a whole lot of things he shouldn't have done and he polarised people. And, yeah, I saw a whole lot of similarities. I read when I got those letters thousands and thousands of words written by my father expecting to see him writing and communicating with my mother. Thousands of words and there was not one word where he mentioned her name. But at least the mystery was solved. Have Maggie and Vincent now settled in your mind? Have all the questions you wanted answers to been answered when it comes to the two of them? Yeah, largely, largely. Look, you know, this was so long ago. My mother's still here. It was 60-odd years ago. I don't know what I had for breakfast yesterday. If she's able to recollect accurately exactly the nature of their relationship and the things that happened, she knew my father his entire life. I think I know I I think I I know everything I need to know about them but I need people to know about the children of priests. You quote Pope Francis in your book who said how can we issue solemn declarations on human rights and the rights of children if we then punish children for the errors of adults. It's a pretty good sentiment and statement. Is the church listening to its leader? Words are cheap. Words are cheap. He needs to act. In what way do you think the church needs to act in this matter? Well, most of the children of priests that I know around the world, most are having psychological counselling still on a regular basis. Nearly all of them are paying for it. Most haven't been recognised by the church in any way or by the local bishop that's handling their case. Most have no idea of their paternal ancestry. They don't know anything about the legals. They don't know if their mother had signed an NDA. And they don't have access to their father's records, to the letters and these wonderful documents that I was given. The church has got to open up. It's got to to acknowledge. It's just got to do the right thing. Words are hollow. People in the church, I've had so many dealings with people high up in the church that... It's always someone else's problem. You know, it's this enormous institution that it's full of good people. The parishioners are all wonderful. Women and men are all wonderful people. But someone somewhere else in the, in the institutional hierarchy isn't playing ball. I think the people within the church, they're the only people that are going to make things change. The church is dying in Australia. It's, it's dying in, in the English-speaking world. And it will continue to do that unless it changes. You mentioned when you brought your young family to visit 
Maggie, see her face to face for the first time at her apartment. She made a fuss of you and put you in the head chair at the table. What do you suspect was going on there? Oh, look, I just thought it was the old, you know, 1950s thinking of, you know, the man, the head of the house, and I'll sit you in the big chair and the head of the table. And, you know, when we first arrived, she sat me in that chair and came and put a beer in my hand. And I thought it was just all that. I thought it was that thinking. But it was only 15, 18 years later that I realised she was sitting me in my father's chair. She was sitting me at the head of the table where my father sat. This is a fascinating story, Brendan, and it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you very much for sharing your story. Thanks, mate. Brendan Watkins' book is called Tell No One. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Miyuki Randa here. I'm the host of the Earshot podcast, where we tell intimate stories full of heart. And our latest is about a box of ashes. He's now here with me sitting in his little box and I'm just just debating whether I've done the right thing. Julie hadn't seen her mate Laurie for 10 years. It had been complicated between them. But after he died, nobody else wanted his ashes. It feels like such a huge responsibility now that I've got him. Regret, remorse, love. What does someone's ashes mean to us? Follow Julie as she finds out what happened to the charismatic Laurie. He had five years of chaos. He basically spent five years trying to create peace and order and got it. And then boom. And she finds a unique way to remember Laurie through his ashes. That's the Earshot Podcast on the ABC Listen app.